0: now hear God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word stands forever.
1: Pray with me this morning as we come to God's word. Our Father, thank You again for Your Word. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us. Thank You for making known to us truth that we would otherwise not have any hope of knowing. And thank You, Father, that this truth is amazing truth and glorious truth. As we come to Your Word this morning to study it, to learn it, we ask for Your help. Holy Spirit, be with us and illuminate this truth to our minds and especially to our hearts Help us to understand it. Help us to know what it means. And more importantly, help us to be confident of it in ways that continue the work that you have begun in us of transforming our lives by the renewing of our minds. God, would you be glorified this morning through the teaching, through the preaching of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am excited today to start studying. These books in our Old Testament that we commonly refer to as the Minor Prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, the Minor Prophets were all considered to be one single book. Sometimes it's called the the Book of Twelve or the Book of the Twelve because there are twelve separate so-called Minor Prophets who wrote at different times from different places and in different circumstances in the history of the Old Testament. And they are the prophets of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's the order that they appear in in our Bible. So that's the order that we're going to study them in beginning today with the book of Hosea. Now, by way of just a little bit of introduction to the books as a whole themselves, again, these 12 books are commonly called the Minor Prophets, the Minor Prophets. And it might be tempting to think that the reason they're called the Minor Prophets is because they're they're of some kind of minor importance or significance compared to the other Prophets, who appear in the Old Testament like Moses and Elijah or the other prophets who write books in the Old Testament like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel we're a lot more familiar with those books and we might be tempted to think that those are the really important prophets the big boys right the top tier prophets the the first string prophets the starting lineup Prophets, right? Well, these twelve minor prophets are the the second string, the bench guys, right? Who they're important but not nearly as good, not nearly as exciting as as the major prophets. Well, if 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 minor prophets means anything like that to you, then just dispel that from your minds. Nothing could be further from the truth about the minor prophets. They are not minor in terms of their significance. Or their importance. They are not minor in terms of the magnitude of their message that God reveals through them. Nothing in any of these 12 books is any less inspired by God the Holy Spirit. It's it's not less breathed out by God. It's not less inerrant. It's not less infallible and living and active and profitable to us as God's people whose souls depend on the rich food of the Word of God like our bodies depend on physical food to survive. The minor prophets are only minor in terms of their length, in terms of their length relative to the longer prophetic writings of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So if it helps you, instead of referring to them as the minor prophets, just call them the shorter prophets. That's what they are. Their writings aren't as lengthy, but they're every bit as prophetic in terms of proclaiming the very words of God, and they're every bit as prophetic as any other book in the Bible, any other part of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, right? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and that includes these 12 books of prophecy that God the Holy Spirit breathed out through these prophets. And He did that in order to reveal things to us, important, essential things about God's holy character and nature, and God's righteousness, and God's will, and especially God's loving and gracious purposes to redeem people in order ultimately to reveal Christ and the gospel to us through these prophetic writings. So, Today, we're going to start in the great book of Hosea. Hosea has 14 chapters. Daniel only has 12 chapters. But even though Hosea has two more chapters than Daniel, Daniel contains more than twice as many words. And so Hosea gets grouped in with the minor or shorter prophets because of that length compared to Daniel and and the others. And of course... Remember when the books of the Bible were originally written, there were no chapters, there were no verse divisions, there were just the words that God breathed out through the prophets. Chapters and verses were added later, not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as is clear in some books as you read and go, why in the world did they put chapter divisions and verses there? But nonetheless, they were added later for our convenience in being able to read and study the Bible. Now, through Hosea... God was speaking mainly to the northern kingdom of Israel. But in verse 1 here of chapter 1, Hosea lets us know that he was prophesying during the reigns of the southern kings of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which was also the time in the north when Jeroboam II, the son of Joash... Was ruling in the kingdom of Israel in the north. And that puts Hosea in the 8th century BC, 800 years, relatively speaking, before the birth of Christ, just before the fall of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, at the hands of the Assyrians. And this would be about 150 years before the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom. Of Judah. So that's the time frame. We don't know a whole lot about Hosea's family or about his upbringing. He says he's the son of Biri, according to verse 1, but, but his dad's name is all we've got. We don't know anything else about his parents or about his upbringing. We just know his dad's name and we know Hosea's name. Hosea, but it's, it's suffered a little bit the name has in its, in, its, in its journey from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English. It should be, if you pronounce it the way the Hebrew has it, it should be Hosea, which is the same name, in fact, as the Hebrew name Joshua, from which the name Yeshua or Jesus came. They're all intimately related names, and all of those names come from the Hebrew verb that means... To save. You remember that when Mary was found to be with child, the angel who appeared to Joseph instructed Joseph to name the child Jesus. Why? Because the name means to save. And the angel said, he will save his people from their sins. That's why he has to have that name. That's what the name means. That's what Hosea's name means. And so as we're going to see, it's a very, very appropriate name. For this prophet of God, who was called on by God to lead a, a, a very difficult and a very painful life, but ultimately it was also that through him and through his family, God could reveal his, his astonishingly gracious love by which he would save his people from their sins. So we're going to jump right in here because. Hosea doesn't give us a whole lot of prelude, he just gives us verse 1, tells us when and who he is, and, and he jumps right in in verse 2 of chapter 1, and today with God's help, we're going to cover the opening two chapters, sorry, if, if you want to stay another hour, we could ch- cover chapter 3 too, but, but we're going to save that for next week, we're going to cover the opening two chapters of this amazing prophecy where the very, um, the very unique, the very unusual and, and shocking But remarkable story of the life of this prophet of God is is told. So like I said, Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC. That that period of time had started out uh, by the providence of God, by the kindness of God. It was a time of peace and prosperity in the kingdom at its inception, but... In the sinfulness of the northern people, including their kings, the prosperity that God granted them gave way to to greed and, and to decadence. And that caused worldliness to start to flourish in the hearts of the people, which led to all kinds of idolatry and all kinds of immorality in their lives. And then their whole world started to fall apart. King Jeroboam II of the northern kingdom, Hosea mentions him here, had been a very, very powerful king. He wasn't a godly king, but at least he was a powerful king, and he was able to protect the kingdom of Israel from from enemy invasions during his reign. But his reign was coming to an end now in Hosea's time, at the same time that the pagan kingdom of the Assyrians had become terrifyingly powerful and militants in their desire to expand their kingdom by conquering other people. And so soon the Assyrians would march against Israel, and within a generation of Hosea's time, the northern kingdom would become extinct. So Hosea is on the very threshold of all of that when the northern kingdom would become invaded would become decimated would become literally wiped off the map and out of the annals of history and so it was to this it was to this decadent worldly idolatrous immoral generation that was facing the coming doom of the assyrians that hosea was sent in order to preach repentance The wrath of God is coming because of your sin. You must turn and you must repent. Now, it doesn't come as any surprise that very often the call and the ministry of a prophet in the Old Testament wasn't exactly a call to something that was going to be a lot of fun, that was going to be personally fulfilling that was going to be the best life that you've ever imagined yourself having in this world now, right? Prophets often in the Old Testament led very difficult, even agonizing lives. Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet because of all of the lament that filled his soul as he prophesied the word of God to people who didn't want to hear the word of God. And he did it during a time of the judgment of God when it was raining down on the southern kingdom of Judah in devastating ways. And when Jeremiah said, look, God's wrath is against us, so we need to repent, they didn't want to hear that. And they beat Jeremiah up, they stripped his clothes off him, they shoved him down into a pit in the ground whenever he preached repentance and holiness to them. Or think about Isaiah, right? God told Isaiah that He's going to go and preach to a people who wouldn't listen, who wouldn't hear, who wouldn't turn. You're going to have precisely zero followers at the end of your ministry, Isaiah. Ezekiel was told that his ministry was going to be like constantly being stung by scorpions all the time. That's a lot of fun, right? Or, or like dropping your pants and sitting down on a thorn bush, God says. That's what it's going to feel like, Ezekiel. Sorry, Painful, uncomfortable, unfulfilling. Daniel spent his whole life in Babylon prophesying to the exiles and being thrown into fiery furnaces and into, into dens of hungry lions, right? Jonah got caught in a ferocious storm at sea and then pitched overboard and swallowed by a fish and then vomited back up on the shore before having to go and preach repentance to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Elijah after contending with the prophets of the pagan god Baal and then having to deal with his own wicked king Ahab and Ahab's evil wife Jezebel, he got so, Elijah got so burnt out, so exhausted, so depressed that he laid down under a tree and literally begged God to just kill him. It's enough, God. I've had enough. Just take my life and let me go to heaven. The life of the Old Testament prophet was absolutely not a glamorous life. And it was very, very often agonizingly painful and horribly discouraging. So, Hosea, consider the call of God on his prophet Hosea. When God said to Hosea in verse 2 of chapter 1 here, Go and take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have with her children of whoredom, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. If you're reading out of the New International Version this morning, it tries to tame this verse down a little bit by translating the Hebrew word there as promiscuous. But the word means a lot more than promiscuous. It's got a lot more to do than than just a, a, a loose woman who sleeps around, right? Harlot is a good translation, the New American Standard uses. Prostitute is a good translation, which is what the New English translation has. The ESV here, which I'm reading from this morning, has whoredom. The King James renders it that way too. And that's a graphically accurate translation of the specific Hebrew word that God uses here. God commanded Hosea to go and marry a prostitute a harlot, a whore, and to have children with her so that their family could become a living picture, a living parable which would illustrate to the people of Israel how disgustingly unfaithful they had all become to their God in their sin. And before we go any further, with that in mind, I want you to flip all the way to the end of the book. All the way over to chapter 14. And look at the very last verse of the book. Chapter 14, verse 9. Which says this. Whoever, after everything's been said, right? Final word. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, Let him know these things, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Whoever is wise that might read in future generations the words of this prophecy, whoever is discerning, let him know. Meaning this, Hosea's prophecy is a message of repentance, and it's not just for the idolatrous nation of Israel in the 8th century BC, it's for everyone who has fallen short of the glory of God in whose image we are all made. It's for everyone who has gone astray from the Good Shepherd who created us in His image. Here, in this ancient book of prophecy, the eternal, almighty, holy, living God will reveal human sinfulness to us in all of its unthinkable heinousness. And by contrast, He will show us not only His holiness, but His absolutely astonishing love and mercy and grace and how He pleads with sinners to turn from their wicked ways, and how He gives salvation to everyone who comes to Him in true repentance. And everything that God is revealing, everything that God is proclaiming through Hosea, who wrote 800 years before Jesus was born, all of it points ahead straight to Jesus, who came to save His people from their sins, and we'll see that this morning. And so as we take this book in, as we take everything that God reveals to us in it, as we take it all in, Pray that it will be profitable, not just for your understanding of how sinful Old Testament Israel was, but for how sinful we all were and how gracious and loving God is towards us. So turn back to chapter 1. Having been commanded by God to go and marry a harlot and to raise children with her in order to become a living parable of Israel's grotesque unfaithfulness towards their God and and of the true nature of of the wicked sin and depravity that characterizes every human heart. Hosea goes now in verse 3 and takes as his wife a prostitute named Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived a child with him and bore him a son. She's going to give birth to three children. Two sons and a daughter, And all of them are given names that are laden with very, very potent meaning. As the children even of this family become very ominous omens of how God, in all of His holiness, deals with human sin and what He has in store for Israel, who is His idolatrous and faithless bride. So the first son is born, and God commands that they name this boy, this little precious baby boy, that they name him Jezreel. Now, there's nothing particular ominous about that name, etymologically, in and of itself. It's related, in fact, to the name Israel. But it's the Old Testament place of Jezreel, right? Verse 4 makes it clear that God is referring to by giving this child that name. It was in the valley of Jezreel in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10 that the wicked and, and, and bloodthirsty, violent King Jehu assassinated Joram and Ahaziah and executed Jezebel and slaughtered all of Ahab's descendants, it was a blood bath in the valley of Jezreel. And a lot of the people who lost their lives in 2 Kings 9 and 10 in the Jezreel Valley were wicked people, godless people themselves. But Jehu was not acting in faithfulness to God when he killed them all. He was simply a petty, jealous, self-absorbed, wicked man, a man of violence, a man of blood, And even though some other evildoers were done away with there, Jehu, by doing what he did, was storing up for himself and for Israel God's wrath every bit as much as, as the Assyrians and the Babylonians were who came in their godlessness and their wickedness and enacted judgment on the land. They ended up accomplishing God's purposes, but not in a way that honored Him, right? And so what God is saying here is that He would not forget what Jehu did. He would not forget what happened in Jezreel, and he would avenge it. He would deal with the sin of Jehu. And that's what's meant by giving the name Jezreel to this first child of Hosea's. It'd be kind of like naming your kid Auschwitz or something. Bad things happened there. And bad things are coming, is what it means that they had to name their first son Jezreel. And bad things did happen there, and bad things would come in God's purposes when the Assyrians came, stormed down from the north, and in the year 733 B.C., just a decade maybe after Hosea's time, they would advance all the way to the Jezreel Valley, the Assyrians would, and destroy all of the northern territories and cities of the northern kingdom of Israel, And take all their inhabitants back into captivity. And from that day on, the northern kingdom had had its head cut off by the Assyrians. It was defenseless. And it wouldn't be another decade before the Assyrians completely destroyed it. Because of the idolatrous sin of Israel. Like the unfaithfulness of Hosea's prostitute wife, bad things were coming. And the child of Jezreel was, was the first omen of the hard, bad things that were to come. The second omen, verse 6, is the daughter that Hosea's immoral wife gave birth to. And I want you to notice a difference here. Notice that when Jezreel was born in verse 3, The text said, she, Gomer, she conceived and bore him, Hosea, a son. And that's the standard way of saying that she and him, Hosea and Gomer, conceived a child together. And so Jezreel was born as the product of their consummation. But here, the wording in verse 6 is a little bit different, subtly different, but it makes the world of difference. Here it says she conceived, not with him, but she conceived and bore a daughter. And what it means is nothing short of this. She conceived the daughter without Hosea, without her husband. She conceived the little girl and also the little boy that comes next that's named in verses 8 and 9. She conceived those two children in her harlotry not in faithfulness to her husband. I mean, this is how graphically the Holy God wants to illustrate how desperate human sinfulness is and how sinful the people of Israel had been towards Him and how He feels about it all. So the little girl is to be named Lo-Ruhamah in Hebrew, which very literally means No pity or no mercy. Makes me think of those great words of this same God in Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah chapter 49, where he speaks comforting words to Israel and says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, right? Moms, you know that. You all with new babies, right? As you're nursing your little child, you have deep compassion for that child. And God's saying, so have I for you in Isaiah 49. I have this compassion for my people. I will not forget you, God says to Judah in Isaiah 49. And the word compassion in Isaiah there is the same word that God uses here as the name of this little child born out of wedlock, the product of his mother's harlotry and unfaithfulness. But this time, it's the opposite message from Isaiah. This time, it's no compassion, no pity, no mercy. Lo, Ruhamah. The Hebrew word lo is our word no. No. In the persistence of their idolatry and immorality and unrepentant sin, they have lost God's compassion towards them. They have lost His mercy. This is absolutely devastating, see? This loss, this this lack of mercy is massive, and it doesn't so much indicate a feeling or a state of mind as it indicates a course of action on God's part. He's not going to be merciful towards Israel anymore. He's not going to tolerate their sinfulness anymore. He's not going to defend them against their enemies anymore. And the weight of this omen that this little girl's name indicates is every bit as much a warning as it is a death sentence. The northern kingdom will fall not long after Hosea's time. God will not protect them. God will not deliver them from the Assyrians. And at the same time, God is calling the people of the northern kingdom now before the judgment comes and falls, He's calling them to repent of their sin that has brought it down. Turn, all of you, from your sin and to the Lord. And then there's a third ominous omen of God's wrath against His people and their sin, their spiritual harlotry towards Him. And that is the third child in the name of the third child. Verses 8 and 9. Hosea chapter 1. Again, a son is born. Again, He's not the product of Hosea's marriage to Gomer. He's the result of Gomer's harlotry and unfaithfulness to Hosea. And his name is Lo, remember that means no, Lo Ami in Hebrew. Literally, not my people. As much as this little boy was not in the truest sense Hosea's own biological son, God is saying through him, to the nation of Israel you're not my people i'm done with you so the nation might be might be nominally by name the lords but it's by name only in actual reality who they are what they're characterized as how they live What's given shape and form to them? In reality, they're not the product of the holy God. They're the product of the fallen world. They're the product of the sin-cursed kingdom of darkness and, and the culture of wickedness that this godless world is absolutely saturated with and dripping with. That's what characterized Israel. Not the holiness of God, not the faithfulness of God, not the love and compassion of God, but the dark, depraved, satanic defilement of this world which shakes its fist at holy God in as many ways as it can conceive to do that. Still today, right? So again, make no mistake, Christian, that God's word here would have us not only recognize the darkness and wickedness in the world around us, and, and, and as His people, it would have us call people in this world to turn from all that wickedness and darkness and to repent and to come to God for mercy in Jesus Christ. God's Word would also have us, as His people, as Christians this morning, pause for a second and ask ourselves, who call ourselves the people of God, who proclaim that we, by God's grace, have come out of the darkness and into the light, to ask ourselves, if that's true, then what is it that characterizes us? What are our thoughts? What are our words? What are our attitudes? What are the things that we do? What are the things that we spend time doing? What are they the product of? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? Is it the wisdom of God in His Holy Word? Is it the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Is it the self-abasing, humble mind of Christ that gives form to what characterizes us? Is it the holiness of God Himself as He defines it by His own nature? Is that what characterizes it? Uh, us? Or, or, or is it the, 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 the junk, the garbage, the stuff of this dark, godless world? The wickedness, the rebellion, the falsehood, the darkness, the foolishness, the godlessness. That 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 suffuses this world, that suffuses our culture like the air that we breathe. That's what, that's what God would have us ask ourselves. It's not enough to be nominally God's people. You must be characterized by God's holiness and God's wisdom and God's truth in every aspect of your lives. So, I mean, what an ominous <laughs> beginning. Chapter 1 is to this book of prophecy, right? But, look at how chapter 1 ends and transitions into chapter 2. God has had Hosea marry a harlot. She's given birth to three children, only one of which was hers by Hosea. Their names mean bad things are coming. No mercy from God and you are not my people but don't forget what Hosea's name means. It means to save. And here now, after all of these these portents of doom and gloom that chapter 1 opens up with, it closes with a glimmer of hope, doesn't it? Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Yet, in spite of all of this, yet, The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, future tense, children of the living God. This is astounding. This is amazing. God will turn from His wrath. God will redeem wayward sinners in spite of themselves and bring them back to himself and say to the ones who used to not be his people, now you are children of the living God. I mean, if that doesn't give you goosebumps and, and, and make your, your breath catch in your chest, I don't know what does. And do you hear the echoes there of that covenant that we looked at last week that God made with Abraham? way back in Genesis chapter 15. To multiply Abraham's descendants like the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. And do you remember that that covenant that God made with Abraham was an unconditional covenant? That it was dependent only on the infallible faithfulness of God in spite of whatever Abraham or his descendants might do or not do. And so it would be an everlasting covenant, remember, from Genesis 17? An unbreakable covenant, you remember? And so here now, hundreds of years later, more than a thousand years after God made that promise to Abraham, after generations, centuries of unfaithfulness and idolatry and wickedness of the people who descended from Abraham, here now God is saying that even all of that spiritual harlotry which will bring His chastisement and wrath and judgment down upon them, it will not cause God to turn away from His promise that He made to Abraham. And you remember from last week, from what He reveals in the New Testament, places like Romans 9, Galatians 3, you remember how God ultimately and marvelously fulfilled and is fulfilling that promise to Abraham in spite of the earthly nation of Israel. In Christ, he's fulfilling it because Christ Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham and he's the one in whom all who have faith in him, from every tribe, from every nation in the world, Jews and Gentiles are counted as Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise and children of the living God, Paul says, doesn't he? So see, having the New Testament in our brains, we understand, we know. As terrible as the divine judgment is that Hosea chapter 1 points to, how wonderful is the divine love that God alludes to here by making the contrast And do you see how it is that that apart from understanding the true nature of human sinfulness, we cannot possibly understand the true nature of divine love. And how much He has actually loved us in spite of us and the wretchedness that is our sin in order to be this faithful to us, this gracious to us, that we should be called children of God and such we are. Verse 11 of chapter 1. Following on into verse 1 of chapter 2. The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. You know who that is? And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Good things will come. Say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. And you know that all of those good things and all of that unification, Ephesians chapter 2, has come through the one head, Jesus Christ, who has broken down the dividing walls and made peace through his blood. There will come a day, God is saying, hundreds of years before Jesus ever appeared, There will come a day, God is saying, through His prophet, when God will save, God will redeem, God will restore, God will reunite by pure grace and divine mercy and divine love. And now, we, 3,000 years later, we know because of what the same God says in the New Testament Scriptures, we know exactly how God brought all of that about, the fulfillment of what Hosea is prophesying here, right? We know exactly how marvelous God's redeeming grace and mercy and love really are. Because He's revealed it in the New Testament to us now. Listen, just listen. You can turn if you want to Romans 9, but listen to to God's words through the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 in verse 22. Paul says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Listen, even us, those who have been redeemed through faith in Christ, even us whom He has called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And then the very next thing that Paul says in Romans 9 and verse 25 is this, So God has revealed His purposes by preparing vessels of mercy for His glory. And those vessels of mercy come from Jews and they come from Gentiles and they're all brought together in the New Covenant as indeed He says in Hosea, Romans 9.25, and then He quotes it. Those who were not My people, I will call My people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there will they be called sons of the living God. That's pretty explicit, right? How exactly would God keep His promise to multiply Abraham's descendants like the sand of the sea, even though the earthly kingdom of Israel would be wiped off the map? How would He reunite it with the kingdom of Judah? In spite of the harlotry of his people, how precisely would God make the rich of his glory known and declare those who had lost his mercy and who were not his people, who were alienated from him, how would he declare them to be his people in fulfillment of what Hosea is saying here? Paul says it by calling a people not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles to be his people to be loved by Him with such a a mind-blowingly amazing divine love that we, every bit the harlot as Gomer was, every bit the unfaithful sinner as any Israelite in the northern kingdom was, that we should be called sons of the living God in spite of ourselves, in Christ alone, through faith in Him alone. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Whether Jews or Gentiles, that we, lost sheep, enemies of God, fallen sinners, that we should be called children of God and such we are, John says, right? 1 John 3 verse 1. Put that on your refrigerator. Every time you feel guilty about your sin and wonder if the wrath of God is going to destroy you. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, to me, that I should be called a child of God, and such I am, in Christ alone, who is the true seed of Abraham, who is the true Israel, who is the Holy One, who is all the fullness of God in human flesh, who is the suffering servant of the Lord, through faith in Him, we are the offspring of Abraham, through faith in Him, we are heirs according to the promise made to Abraham. Through faith in Him, Christ, we are children of the living God, adopted heirs with Christ. Amazing. The Apostle Peter, also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, explains it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, he's invoking the very language of Hosea here. So listen to verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, it's written to Jews and Gentiles who are one in Christ Jesus by faith. And Peter says to them, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Now listen to Hosea's words and how Peter says they're fulfilled. For once you, Jews and Gentiles, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were once lo amin. I was once lo amin. Not God's child. An outcast. An alien. An enemy. But now... I am his people. Once I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy and fulfillment of this great prophecy all through the great work of Jesus Christ. And so, while it is this repulsive and repugnant and revolting sin of Israel, and, and by way of their exposure, the, the sin of all humanity in Adam, well, well, that's what's put on graphic display through Hosea's marriage to a harlot. And by the children, two of them born out of her harlotry, whose, whose names reflect the horrible results and consequences of sin, ultimately, ultimately, it is God's great and unfathomable love that is on such vivid and radiant display in Hosea whose name means to save. And it's on display, especially as the sovereign purposes of that divine love find expression and fulfillment and manifestation in Jesus Christ. And in all from every tribe and every nation who by God's grace are in Him. So behold this awesome mercy of God who would say to us, you are my children, you are my people, you have received mercy. Who is a God like our God? Amen? Now, quickly, chapter 2 aims us in that same direction. Towards the gracious, merciful, loving heart of God. Towards hopelessly lost sinners. And it shows us how God reconciles the lost by winning their hearts with His great love. Verse 2, chapter 2. Plead with your mother. God urges Gomer's children, plead with her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Now the word plead there doesn't just mean to beg emotionally. It means plead like a legal pleading in a courtroom, like an argument made in a courtroom. What God is saying here is to to Gomer's children, He's saying you need to proclaim to this woman that's your mother, objectively, that in every objective way, Because of the way she's living, the reality has evaporated out of my relationship with her, says God. She's not living as my wife, she's living as a whore. And God is saying, by extension, say that to sinners, say that to Israel. And on the basis of that reality, you've got to plead with her to repent, to put away her whoring and her adultery. So here we need to see this. How does the unfathomable love and mercy of God actually reach lost sinners? Well, first of all, it's through repentance. God is a holy God who does not turn a blind eye. God does not ever downplay the severity of sin and say, well, I just love you so much that I'm willing to just overlook it all. God does not, like some desperate, insecure, spurned husband, just say, well, as long as you'll take me back, we'll just let it all go and forget it all. God is holy, and the holy God demands repentance. He demands holiness from us. Verses 3 and 4 show that, right? Without repentance, there will be no mercy. Without repentance... God will strip her bare in shame and abandon her and leave her to wither and die. So, despite what the world insists on, and despite the fact that so much of the church has imbibed the spirit of the world and the spirit of the age and and insists that sin is not a big deal, that it's all just about love and not about wrath and holiness and that God is eager to just sweep sin under the rug and that it's okay to let sin just go cuz God loves us just the way that we are doesn't need us to change in spite of all of that that is not who God is. In verses 5 through 13 of chapter 2 it's clear sin is serious. God does not treat it lightly. Their mother has played the whore. God doesn't mince words. God doesn't sugarcoat it. And he says he will deal with sin according to its Severe contrast with His blazing holiness. I will hedge her up with thorns and I will build a wall against her. But notice as you read through chapter 2, which I encourage you to do this coming week even, notice that the language of transformation, the language of sanctification has begun to press in on God's words of hatred towards sin. It's not just I'm going to destroy sin. It's that in destroying the sin, I'm going to purify the sinner. Again, glorious truth here. Verse 7, she shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. I won't let her, God says. I will change her. And then shall she say, I will go and return to my husband. For it was better for me than now. You see, God's going to deal with the sin in His justice and in His love. By healing it. He's going to uncover her lewdness, verse 10. There's no one who can rescue her from His wrath and justice except for Himself. Who by pouring out His judgment against her sin will actually save her from it. By destroying it. Therefore, verse 14, chapter 2, Behold, I will allure her, entice her, win her, bring her into the wilderness of shame, to know the depth of her depravity, to taste the fullness of its bitterness, but then I will speak tenderly to her and give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. Achor means trouble. That's what the, the word literally means. You remember the story in Joshua chapter 7 of Achan? Who disobeyed God and, and greedily took some treasure that God forbid him to take and buried it in his tent? And God revealed it? And so the leaders of Israel took Achan and the stolen goods and Achan's sons and Achan's daughters and even Achan's livestock and they brought them out into this valley and they said, look, you've brought trouble on us and now the Lord's going to bring trouble on you and they, they, they killed them all. Achan's whole family stoned them all, burned them, buried them there and called that place the valley of trouble, the valley of Achor. Joshua chapter 7 how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the holy God. But here, the same God says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Because this God, who is unchangeably holy and just, is also unchangeably merciful and loving. What has been lost in divine judgment can be restored, but only by divine mercy and love. And it has to be cured. It has to be healed. It has to be reversed. And it's not enough for the sin to stop outwardly. God's got to rip it out of our very hearts. He's got to remove, look at verse 17, remove the names of the Baals, the idols that they worship, the false gods. Remove it from her mouth. And cure sinners from imputing all of the idolatry and sinful lusts to Him. And he will enamor them with his true holiness and love and with himself. This is how God works. And in verses 18 through 21 there at the end of chapter 2, look at how he speaks about how he's purposing to do all of that, not just for a few people, but on a grand and cosmic scale to tear all sin and decay and corruption from the creation itself eventually. And leave it as a place of peace. A place of peace between animals, even predators and prey. They won't tear each other to pieces anymore in in the redeemed creation when I get done with it, God says. It'll be a place between of peace between people, because He's going to do away with the bow and the sword, He's going to do away with all war and violence. And I, verse 19, I will betroth you forever and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens. I will answer the earth. You know what he's talking about? It's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. The whole creation has been subjected to futility because of sin, and it's all groaning for redemption. And God says, I'll answer it. I'll do it. I'll fix it. I'll redeem it. And he's already started. He's already begun to make all things new by making us new in Christ Jesus. By redeeming us, by having mercy on us, by drawing us by his great grace to repentance. To be done with sin. To rip it out of our hearts and our lives. To desire it no more. To turn from all of the horrible, grotesque decay of sin and idolatry and immorality. And to turn to the holiness and righteousness of God in His steadfast love and mercy. To turn to Him. And so God says, I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy And the one who is named no mercy, I will give mercy to. And I will say to the one who is named not my people, you are my people. And that child shall say, you are my God. And behold, that's who you are. You are now the people of God. You are now the the ones upon whom divine love and mercy has fallen. So do you see that God who is holy and just and righteous and who hates sin and who pours out wrath and judgment upon sin to destroy it and purge sin is doing that as a God who is also supremely and unimaginably kind and merciful and loving. And how His purging of sin from the whole creation eventually is meant to purify it and make it a a place of, of universal peace and joy and that that's what he's doing for his sinful people too he has not drawn you just to forgiveness he's drawn you to repentance and he has done that by the great depth and width and breadth of his divine love in Jesus Christ let that train your heart now this great love of God in Christ, let it train your heart to hate the sin that God hates and for which Jesus died. Let the grace of God train your heart to loathe it as the repugnant decay that it really is and teach you to forsake it and put it to death wherever it festers in your mortal body and repent of it every single day of your life. Repentance isn't something you just do once. Repentance is what your life is now in Christ. Constantly turning from sin. Constantly turning to Christ. We'll close here with Paul's words in Titus chapter 2. And let these words ring and resound with this great theme that he declares through Hosea. Let them resound in your hearts. Because this is how what Hosea prophesied is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Paul says, for the grace of God has now appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of God. Of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We're going to have to save chapter 3 for next time. Five brief verses which beautifully picture redeeming grace in the actual life of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer, and his love for her in spite of her. Read it for next week, but today, let's close and pray together and sing praises together that God has had mercy on sinners such as us, that He has loved us with such a love that we, like Gomer, in spite of ourselves, could be called children of God and heirs of this mercy. Let's pray together this morning. Our God and our Father, again, would You help us to understand the truth that You have revealed in Your Word, and would You also help us to understand the fact that it is, in fact, beyond all that we could ask or think. It is beyond comprehension. It is beyond imagination. How gracious and loving You are, given how sinful we were. And so, Father, we plead with You, that the great grace with which we have been loved, the great mercy that has been poured out upon us, by which we have been made to be called children of the living God, that this would train our hearts for righteousness. Help us to see the sin that remains in us, that plagues us, wherever it is, even stuff that we've denied and covered up and not even known about yet. Father, help us to see it all and hate it all and turn from it all and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we sing to you now and as we come to the table to partake of your grace and to be fed and further trained and equipped for righteousness, Father, help us to pour out gratitude and thankfulness because of who you are and all you've done. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Page 12. Stand. And we're going to sing, My Heart is Filled with thankfulness. Let's sing and let's sing loudly to our God.